Good morning, good day, or good evening to each of you, whenever and wherever you're listening. This is your Captain Rick Jones speaking to you from the bridge. We have another terrific show for you today as we continue our discussions about making great presentations. Our guest angler, Joe Rossi of the 401 Group, knows a thing or two about making great impressions as he'll discuss his designs and experiences at trade shows, special events, and in venues. We'll have another Tuesday tip and another On the Road with Rick. So let's get right to it. Last week, we started our discussions about presentations and how critical they are for selling sponsorships because the presentation paints the picture of the sponsorship and how the brand might interact with the fans of that event, team, or activity. A critical element of presentations is the use of strategic experiential modules or SIMs. And there are five of these SIMs. The first one are senses. The second one are feel. The third is think, the fourth is act, and the last is relate. Now let's start with senses. And there are also five of these, of course. There's sight, there's sound, there's touch, there's smell, and there's taste. And you need to engage prospects with each of these senses in order to be more successful in your presentations. Let's start with sight. Of course, sight is used, well, most of the time, 100% of the time. But let me tell you a funny story about it when it was not. I was a, I was a sophomore in high school, and uh, you know, one of the things you do as a sophomore in high school is you get your driver's license. And I had a good friend named Dave Flood who got his driver's license, and, and Dave got his third speeding ticket. He was still 16, and in Kansas, uh, it was an automatic suspension two-year suspension of your driver's license if you had gotten three speeding tickets. Well, you had a chance to uh, plead your case before a judge. And so obviously Dave could not drive himself to the courthouse. So I went with him to the courthouse in Topeka, Kansas. We lived in Overland Park. We had to drive to Topeka uh, to see the judge. Well, Dave, you know, this was 1971. Uh, Dave, uh, had cut his hair. Uh, he cut his hair really, really short. He put on his, his football uh, letter jacket with all his ribbons and pins and a tie. And we went down to see the judge. Well, when we got to the courthouse, the judge walked into the court and she was blind. <laughs> And so all that haircutting and good looks and ties did nothing with a blind judge. So that was a one time sight didn't matter. And yes, uh, Dave lost his uh, appeal and didn't drive for another two years. But sight is used in most presentations. Of course, you're going to have a presentation deck of some sort. It may be a leave behind or something that's there. You're also probably going to have a presentation and a, some sort of a PowerPoint or other uh, you know, composition that's going to be shown on a screen. Um, sight is important in terms of the font, the size of the font. If you're presenting to an old guy like me, you might want to think about having a larger font because I can't read anymore. Um, you also ought to think about what your colors say about your presentation. 
um, and, and, and the visual props. Um, I had a chance years ago at Conan Wolf to go with our founder and president and chief creative officer, Bob Cohn, to meet the governor uh, of the state of Georgia. We were working on a, a project called Quality Basic Education. We were doing the the PR for a new campaign that the then governor, Joe Frank Harris, wanted to launch. Well, I didn't work on that project, but Cone liked me, and he wanted me to go down and meet the governor. So we got in the car to drive down to the governor's office, and we stopped by um, an artist's uh, office who had done some collaterals for us, and she had done your classic uh, children's block, you know, the old blocks that you played with. And the three sides of the block that were exposed on the picture had QBE on each of the exposed parts of the block for quality basic education. And they were uh, in blue and green colors. Well, we got to the governor's office and as we're walking down the hall, Cone says, hey, Rick, you know, you haven't worked on this project. Let me do all that talking. (laughs) You're right, I am, because I don't know anything about this project. So that's great, Bob. So we got in with the governor and his uh, secretary of education, and uh, Bob walked them through the whole program. And then at one point, the governor, Governor Joe Frank Harris, turned to Bob and said, why did you pick these two colors? And Bob then looked at me and said, Rick, Tell them why we picked these colors. I took a deep breath, thought a minute, and said, well, you know, Governor, the blue is for the vastness of the program, like the blue of the sky. And we all know that green is the color of growth. And we didn't want to pick Georgia colors, black and red, or Georgia Tech colors, gold and white. And the Governor said, that's great, and bought it. Well, as we walked down the hall after leaving the meeting, Cone patted me on the back and said, way to go, coach. You made that shit up. So, uh, yes, I did. But it was a classic case of why the colors mattered and that the colors led to a question. You're going to bring other visual props, props that are going to engage their sight. How do you dress? How's your presence? What are your gestures? These are all things people are going to see and associate in your presentation. The second sense is sound, and sound is so critical. Trisha Yearwood recorded a song a few years ago called The Song Remembers When. I want you all to think a minute. You can be riding down the road, and a song from your past comes on, and that song can immediately take you back to that time and place. It can make you laugh. It can make you cry. It can make you ache. It can make you long. It is amazing what music does because music will travel immediately to your auditory nerve where it is evaluated by the cerebral networks that process our emotions. And that happens before we even identify what we're hearing. In a split second, our brain scans its files for a match. If the music unlocks memories, you are likely to experience the same emotions you felt when you first heard it. Now, in my business, we sell both college sports and country music. When we're out selling college football, we like to play marching band or pep music, pep band music. We want to play those classic fight songs that you hear in college football. And obviously, for country music, we play, and are you ready for this? Country music. (laughs) 
because that's what we're here to sell. Think about the sound and the tone of your voice. Think about the inflections of your voice. These things can create enthusiasm, and enthusiasm leads to connectivity. Sound is essential in presentations. I also think touch is very helpful. I like to pass things around that people can feel the texture. I like to put their logo on really classy apparel or really classy notepads. You know, it's nice to come in and have a notebook with their logo and the logo of the event already on it that they can take notes in and they can touch and feel the the quality of that. And there are other uh, items that you can pass around that people can touch during the presentation. Now, smell and taste are so interrelated. So much of our taste is determined by our smell. Now, what do I like to serve? Popcorn. Popcorn smells and tastes like a ball game or like a concert. And so it immediately puts them in the frame of mind to do that. I've often brought a small cooler and served popsicles. Now, everybody likes popsicles. And the fun part about popsicles is they melt. And so people have to eat them, and that's when I talk. By the time they finish the popsicle, it's time for me to shut up and listen to them. If you can't get through your presentation in the time it takes to eat a popsicle, your presentation is too long. Use the popsicle test the next time you rehearse. So you're going to engage with sight, with sound, with touch, with smell, and with taste. The next strategic experiential module is feel. What do they feel? One of the things that we often sell is authenticity. Do they feel that we're authentic? Sometimes we, f- we get them to understand that what we're doing is going to involve the community. We're going to be very community or even charitable cause-related. That allows them to feel good about their investment and what we're doing. And one of the biggest senses of feeling that I know is the feeling of nostalgia. If you're selling to baby boomers or Gen Xers, go back and play the music of their generation. Go back and serve food of their generation. Go back and tell stories of their generation in a way for them to feel nostalgic because they're going to believe if they feel nostalgic about the sponsorship, then certainly their customers in the same age group are going to feel that way too. Another sim is think. We deal a lot of times in presenting to corporations with people that are classically trained MBAs. And so they want to know that we have thought and analyzed about what we are proposing. They're going to want to see the data. They're going to want to see turnkey solutions. They're going to want to be able to show how we're going to instruct uh, sales people how to use these assets. They're going to want to know how we utilize technology. Uh, They're going to want to know what we're going to do online uh, and in social media. They're going to want to know how uh, fans can self-select what they're doing. 
you know, and fans often come to uh, activations wanting to know about products and services. They and and that's where you've got to engage them by being able to show them what you think. Uh, I often watch AT and T and the way they annually activate around the final four. And a lot of it is new products and services where you have to think about how you can use those. Still yet another sim is act. This is where you put people in physically doing things, product sampling, demonstrations, trials, um, where you create events or events within events. This is where you have hands-on training sessions or social media. This is where I like to engage them in the presentation. Um, you know, the thinking part is where you ask them the question. This, the acting part is where you let them actually do something. You put them through an exercise, or you may do a product demonstration or actually a product sampling as, as it would appear at your particular event or activity. But the final sim may be the most important of all, and that is relate. Can they relate? And this is where case studies are so important, or even endorsements. You remember when Gatorade came out with the Be Like Mike campaign? You wanted to be like Michael Jordan, be like Mike. You could relate to that. Martha Stewart is the queen of can I relate to Martha? Do you relate to Martha? I like Bobby Flay. He's a guy that I think is a really talented chef, and and I relate to the things that Bobby Flay does. What I like about him is he's very serious about cooking, but he doesn't take himself so seriously, and that's why he does the Beat Bobby Flay shows on the Food Network. Um, A lot of times in an event, you'll bring in a guest lecturer, or someone will make a guest appearance because you can relate to that particular person or that story. And that's where testimonials become so critical, I think, in your initial presentation for them to relate to you in a way that will do that. And clearly, uh, social media and what people are saying about your event, your brand, your activity, your organization is essential. So the question today is how many sims are you using in your presentation? Here's today's Tuesday tip. This week is Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and one of the holiest days of the year for my Jewish brethren. It got me thinking a lot about Lent. For Christians, our holiest day is Easter Sunday. Easter is the end of the season of Lent. And Lent is that period of 40 days before Easter, not counting the Sundays during that 40-day period. Now, Lent begins on Ash Wednesday, which is the day after Fat Tuesday, better known as Mardi Gras. And it's traditional during the Lenten season to give something up for Lent. Now, I like that. Here's what I do. I'm very fortunate that I fly so much that nine times out of ten, I get upgraded to first class. During the 40 days of Lent, I give up first class. I find a soldier or a pregnant woman or a little old lady that's sitting in the back of coach and ask them if they would like to sit in first class. Uh, But more than giving up, I like giving more than giving up. And my first class give up does both. 
I give up something, and you say, Rick, that's no big deal. Give up first class. Try traveling 320 days a year, and you'll find out it is a big deal to give up first class. But more importantly, it gives someone that maybe never had a chance to sit there to sit in a more comfortable seat on the plane. So the question today is, what are you giving up today? My guest today is Joe Rossi, founder and CEO of the 401 Group, an experiential design firm based in Orlando, Florida. Hey, Joe, welcome to The Bridge. Thanks. Good to have you today. I want to talk a little bit about, I know you're a Chicago boy, but you live in Orlando now. Talk a little bit about your background, your journey, how you got to Orlando, and how you got into the experiential design business. Well, that's uh, it's kind of an easy answer, but a long, long journey, right? So, um, right out of high school, going uh, going to Winona State University, I worked down at McCormick Place as a trade show carpenter. And used to do setup and dismantle of the exhibits, and uh, had an opportunity with a longtime family friend um, that knew New Balance well, uh, Jim Davis, the founder, and he got me set up with with them at a very young age and an introduction opportunity, and that in a short period of time led into me servicing that account. And from that point forward, I felt it was uh, better suited for me to really dive into a career and uh, had pulled out of going to college and just started working that relationship. So it was uh, it was early on in my life. I really didn't know what I was going to do long term. But I knew there was a big opportunity in front of me with a growing company. And uh, the brand was, to me, strong because I grew up with this individual that uh, was their Midwest sales rep. And so I saw the growth, you know, at a young age, and I knew it was only going to continue to grow. And uh, so I um, brought it to a company I used to do set up work for, and they uh, they had won the business and uh, unfortunately had not done New Balance um, justice at the final execution, and I got caught up in all that because I was the individual that introduced them, and so you know I took a personal approach and decided it's time for me to resign from that company. Um, and everybody, you know, the company and New Balance included, was just like, kind of like, you don't have to go to that extreme. We'll get it figured out. But I really felt that I told New Balance specifically, this is what they were going to get in return for their dollars spent. And due to the fact I could not control it, I, um, I was in a position of just an employee, and and uh, at the end of the day, the owner of that company made the decisions. And so um, I had a year non-compete. I fully honored it, 
And during that time, I was trying to figure out what was going to be the, my next move. Am I going to go work for someone else or am I going to do something I'd have more control in? So I went back to, you know, I, I explored for that year's time. I went to go work for a family friend that got me in the business knowing I could trust them. And I was really thinking that was where I was going to stay. And uh, unfortunately, the individual that I was working for, really my mentor, uh, he got uh, lung cancer. He was a heavy uh, cigar, a big cigar smoker. And um, it was devastating because he had the Converse business and some other big accounts. And he was readily ready to finally take the move to start getting into design and building were at the time we were just set up and he had brought me on board and said, Hey, you're going to be my first sales guy. We're going to do this. Cause he was the one that lured me to take the job at the other company because he, he just wasn't built to handle new balance, uh, in, in the way they needed uh, service. He was just were a setup guy. Chicago, were you still in Chicago at the time? Yes. I, yeah. yep. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I have a little sign in my office that says, I believe in me. After that, there's room for doubt. Yeah. <laughs> and I think yeah. you were at that point in your career that you had depended on others. Uh, and then you go to work for a guy that you had great respect for and great chemistry with. And then he's gone. So now it's a big fork in the road for you. It is. Especially when you're, man, at the time I was uh, just turning 20. And I'm looking at my life going, boy, did I make the right choice here? Should I stayed up at Winona or should I have done this? And, um, you know, with, with working sales for this individual, I had met a couple building design firms because again, early on, we were just doing setups. So it's, it's common in our industry that design and build firms don't do setups. It's because you're you're fronting payroll, you're holding a lot of uh, a lot of expenses, and um, if you can leverage someone else to do that service for you, and then use their money uh, for 90, 120 days, and uh, make make a percentage on it, you know you're in a good spot, and that was a common trade. So, so with that being said, I took one last ditch effort knowing that um, there was going to be some bumps in the road ahead of me if I were to stay with that business because I still had family ties. We just didn't know what the outcome was going to be and who was going to be the leadership and everything else. And, um, you know, for the short term, the oldest son had taken over and he had actually really given me an ultimatum to make a decision and he did not like some of my ideas I had put in front of him. So I really knew I had to make a hard line choice. And uh, so I had reached out to a potential customer and convinced them to uh, financially back a labor company at the time and knowing that I would evolve it. Um, and so I was lucky enough to to get a company to do that. Cause I said to him, you're, you're giving all this business away and I could show you how it'd make you a lot more money. I know it's going to tie up some money, but at the end of the day, 
not only will you be making money on your own work, but the work in which I could bring and how I could lay it out would give you that much more. And they, they took on the challenge. So that was 1993 where um, I was fortunate enough to get a piece of the business and I ran it day to day by myself. And then ironically later hired my boss from the first company I went to work for because um, she was, she was a, a really good individual is the owner of that company that, you know, really made the decision to, in my opinion, overbill New Balance for the service they got. So, um, so 1993, here it is. I started in this business, never owned a business, knew the service side really well and knew I wanted to get into something more than that. And, uh, New Balance just exploded right about that time, uh, within two years of that time frame. So by, Late 94, 95, New Balance just hit that wave, and I was right there with them. And it led into designing and building and other brands wanting to be part of what we were doing because New Balance was such a fast-growing business, and they felt that if we were handling them, we were right the right organization. And uh, it... Um, it turned into, hey, can you design and build our retail stores? Can you come up with a better way to design and manage our point of sales? Um, so it, it just kept evolving and evolving. And then they got really big in marathons, which was pop-up retail um, at the time. It, no one really used those terms, pop-up retail, but that's exactly what we were doing. Uh, we were showing up at these expos associated with marathons and and selling products and you know our team would not want to go back to the hotel so if we had a group in san diego flying from chicago at the time they would not go to the room after the show opened they would stay and work the event just so they didn't get bored during the week and uh before you knew it, my guys are all coming back with this knowledge. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. You, you were doing that the whole time. And so we started offering that as a service to smaller brands that didn't have the bandwidth to, uh, to sell and set up registers and send people in the field to fit people. Cause we were working with other footwear companies at this point. And, um, you know, that, that really turned into a great opportunity. And, and from working so much retail, we then, by the uh, late 90s, started uh, investing ourselves into New Balance retail stores. And so this is actually when I took the opportunity to move down to Orlando because I had a chance to buy the two uh, New Balance Orlando stores. Okay, so that was your fork that got you out of the cold Chicago winters uh, down to Orlando. And, and, and so now you're in Orlando. Um, you had been doing, again, a lot of trade show work, a lot of retail work, a lot of pop-up experiential work. You know, Joe, I, I'm, I'm so impressed with the quality of your creativity, uh, the projects we've worked on, 
Uh, we saw the work you had done in Central Florida. I want to talk about that for a minute. But also, you know, we had seen the unique work you had done for Under Armour, the unique work you had done for Champion, you know, product design, retail. And then the stuff you did for us at both Florida International and Louisiana Lafayette is just exceptional. Where, where did that creativity come from? How do you extract creativity from your team? I haven't seen any of your work that looks the same. That's one of the things that I think is the best tribute I can give you. Y'all are not a cookie-cutter agency. Y'all are a really built-to-spec kind of – how did that come about? Well, that's interesting. So um, it actually started with TaylorMade Golf back in 1995. They – they had approached us because we were servicing them as a labor provider and they had asked us for recommendations of some other competitors. Again, at the time we were just doing labor and uh, we'd asked them to give us a chance to show them what we can do in design. And from working in the industry, I had, I had known a couple of, designers and ironically i got hooked up with this guy right out of college and then we hired him to do a design for us along with um another individual and so we we actually came into to that uh project with two concepts but tailormade still went out and got three well-established industry um companies to design against us and i came up with the idea of outside the box of because it's really common in our industry for if you design something speculatively you own 100 percent of those rights legally and so the company has no choice but to use you because they use you and three others at the same time to design something you chose them because of their creativity, to your point, Rick. So you have to use them. That was a common industry standard. And we had told TaylorMade, whatever you do going into this, you want to buy the rights to the design. So you need to establish that on the front end that you will pay X for any design given. And then from that point forward, you are going to bid out that design so that you have an apples-to-apples design. Because sometimes you go into these situations where clients are solely making their decision on budget, not creativity. And you see it time and time again where they buy something at X price and then they're not happy with it because they're looking at their competitor across aisle and their trade show exhibit is 10 times better. Well, yeah, because they paid five times more, right? So um, by doing that and establishing that, TaylorMade was blown away. They're like, that's such a great idea, to the point where they had two industry competitors bail out of the competition. They're like, we're not selling you our design to have XYZ build it. It's not going not gonna to happen. And TaylorMade was like, well, if you're confident in your design – you know, you should be the best price. You're designing it, you know, and they didn't want to get exposed is what it was. 
Well, we lucked out. They bought our design. So we already had the head start. And here it is. We're just a labor company. We're not one of these multi-year established design and build firms. So they were blown away right away. They're just kind of like, you know, hey, we don't want to get too comfortable here because you are a labor company. But right now, it's great your design one, but now how are you going to build it? You've never done this before. And through, again, selling in the business, the service of labor, I knew a bunch of builders in town. And so I actually... I took it out to bid with three to four builders and we, we felt, you know, we had the right builder going into it. We presented our number and Taylor made almost fell off their chair. And what we found out is because we were $150,000 less than our nearest competitor and we made good money on it. So we knew we were onto something right away. And then as New Balance got on that growth spurt, they trusted us, and we used that same system moving forward to do design and build. And I ended up hiring that young guy right out of college. And to this day, he's my oldest employee, Phil Turner. Talent so, always wins. You know, it does. It, you know, it really does. If all things are even. You know, I've found that many times, like you said, agency of record gets priority. You know, Uncle Joe's company gets priority, but all things being even, I think talent wins. I want to switch gears for a minute and talk a little bit about as you've left the the experiential retail, not left, but as you've migrated to some mm-hmm. other areas, talk a little bit about what you did at Central Florida and what you did for us at FIU and UL. Sure. Well, actually, real quick, Rick, on that, to your point, how I kind of migrated over, right? So when I moved the business down here in 98, I was fortunate enough knowing how important marathons were to growth and that pop-up retail. I went and knocked on Disney's door as a local retailer, right? And sure enough, I got all kinds of blocks like from stopping me coming into that event. So, you know, I I wasn't going to settle for that. So I kept barking up the tree and finally met this guy, right? We all know well, Mike Millay, because I wasn't going to stand for these people telling me, you can't come. We're, you know, we're, we're already committed to this other local retailer. I'm like, that's, that's just crazy. Like, why wouldn't you let anyone else into your expo? And we showed them they finally created a new expo that was out of the gate and they let us have a chance there because here it is disney world class and you would go to their expo and it looked like a flea market and so when when they created this new expo we were the highlight because we went in there with this all-out custom environment and service and it was it was interesting you know and that's how i Met the Disney guys, which later left, you know, led into other relationships at Disney. So in discussions with another individual we both know really well, John Biziano, after he left Disney, I stayed close to him when he was the president of Central Florida Sports. Yep. And um, I kept telling him, John, you know, because everywhere I'd go, Mike was still back at Disney. And I knew John was more independent at this point. Like you got to, you got to 
get me into the college scene. All these colleges are doing all this stuff. That's the exact same thing we really do day to day. And uh, he knew Kevin White really well. And he made a call for us and got us in front of Danny White and his people. And uh, we, we went into that meeting with speculative design, not even knowing anything about them. They're blown away. And they're like, hey, we're, we're not ready for that. We're not there. Um, this is great work. And we're glad you're local. And if we have anything, we'll call you. Within six months, they called us. And uh, they came to us and said, we have a really unique project and opportunity. It's not, it's not redoing our locker room, not redoing our weight room not redoing our recruiting facility. And those were the three things we speculatively designed for them just to show them our talent. But not one of those opportunities were there. They said, have you done any stadium work? And we're like, yeah, we've done work at United Center and some others. And they're like, no outdoor stadiums. No. Why would you use us for that? Well, because we're going to create this uh, club on the West Concourse, and we're uh, we're going to go to our season ticket holders and raise their tickets by seven hundred fifty dollars a ticket. But we need to give them something in return. They took us there; it was awful. And you know this routine, Rick, right? You go there; it's this old stadium used for six to seven home games a year, and that's it, right? Uh, not a lot of investment into the experience when you're doing that. So we took a look around at this point, our design team has grown obviously. And uh, so we came up with a concept. They loved it. It was too risky for them at first. It was like, you know, how do you strip this down to still look this good? And so we worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. And it took about three months. We finally came up with something that still looked great because we don't want to strip our design down either where it doesn't reflect our ability and, and our talent. You know, it's, it's great to just get a job, but we're not, we don't operate that way. So we worked really hard to get something within a budget. Um, the problem, what we're finding with a lot of these schools, they, they won't tell you a budget because they don't really know what to budget. So then once you... Or they have you, champagne taste and a beer budget. I mean, yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I really want that. Can I have that for half the price? Uh, right. No, you can't. Right. right. <laughs> but, but surprisingly, then you have these other schools way overspending. And you look at that and say, I can make that look just as good for one-eighth of what that costs, yeah. you know, or one-third. Yeah. So we handed off. We made it work. And they made a lot of money. And we looked good. And... We established a relationship, and that led to the opportunity with you guys. Well, and and they also started winning football games, and we give you all the credit, you know. When they yeah, right. WBS Stadium, they weren't winning any games. They were over twelve after the Joe Rossi four one group uh, renovation. They 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 went twenty seven in a row. So right, yeah. So you got to take credit where where credits due. Hey, we just got a few more minutes. I know you want to expand into more facilities and 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 we 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 believe that y'all do great work and are going to be able to do that and we hope that we're going to be a a partner with you in in some of the things that we do i'm amazed that as i travel around 
just how bad stadiums are at the collegiate level. I mean, using the word dump, it may be not a strong enough word. Uh, and yet, if they would just pay a little attention to some details, they could change all that. Yeah. Well, you're totally right. And what I'm seeing as I have the opportunity with you and others to look at these facilities, uh, it's just, again, they have that mindset. We're using it six, seven times a year. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. And um, I think that they have to think more creatively on how they can get more use out of that stadium throughout the year whether it's concerts or other venues and, and whatnot. I know that they're always protected of their grass slash turf, but um, it, again, it, it's funny you say that about the UCF program. I, I tell everyone, I don't, I really don't care if UCF went undefeated or not that first year I got involved with the organization, the experience at the game and how they've structured it is worth the spend regardless if they won them all. Right. And, um, and I am just blown away on how many stadiums to your point are in that condition. And it's not as expensive to do, especially if you have access to sponsorship, um, like, like, you know, happened down at FIU when we did that design for you, you guys went out, you talked to them, you told them and, Next thing you know, you encourage them to go get sponsorship. It didn't even cost the university any money at the end of the day, right? You know, um, and that's, you know, that's things that, again, it's so different for these schools. They just don't don't really know how to, I guess, best approach it. But that experience is so much uh, better for the, whether it's the, the student coming, supporting the team, or the alumni, they just have a lot more to look forward to getting there versus it just being this stick and old and dirty and just no excitement and not good products offered. Right. Well, we, you know? Yeah. We like to say that we say repeatedly on this podcast that fans pay for everything. And mm-hmm. what you've done is you've said, I'm going to, I'm going to look at the physical plant from the view of the fan and I'm going to figure out a way to do that. Hey, we got to we got to let you go today. Uh, but I want to get you back because you've done one thing that I'm really fascinated with. The next time we have you on, I want to talk a little bit about fabrication from an environmental standpoint, uh, because that's a very, very hot subject at the collegiate ranks. And the next time I have you on, I want to talk about your Disney memorabilia collection, because I know you're one of the largest collectors in the world. But we got to run today, so thanks for being with us today from the bridge. Right on. Thanks for having us. Let's close our show with another segment of On the Road with Rick. We talked earlier today about the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah. I love Jewish food, but most of us who are not Jewish think that Jewish food is really Eastern European Jewish food. Uh, And that's the classic deli foods like chopped liver or latkes or stuffed cabbage, corned beef, chicken soup, coleslaw. Well, my favorite Jewish deli is New York City's finest, Cat's Delicatessen. 
If you ever saw the movie When Harry Met Sally, they filmed the famous fake orgasm scene there. It was established in 1888 by the Iceland brothers. And then Willie Katz joined that team in 1903. And then Willie and his cousin Benny bought the place in 1910. And it's been moved to its current location on the Lower East Side in 1917. So it's been there for now over 100 years in the same location. It's got that classic ambience. It's got the famous rude service and fabulous food. You got lots of choices, but get the pastrami on rye, the coleslaw, a side of Russian dressing, and a cream soda. Close out with some New York-style cheesecake for dessert. It's simply the best. So that's another show in the books. Let me hear from you with suggestions and comments at my email address, and that's rick at fishbaitmarketing.com. We'll see you next week. This has been your captain, Rick Jones, from The Bridge. If you like what you hear, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. Everybody wants me to be what they want me to be. But I can't be nobody else but me. Yeah. I'm sick and tired of trying to Rest my mind